Father, I want to thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit here this evening. You're our teacher. You guide us into all truth. You, you lead us. And so we want to listen to what the Spirit has to say to the church this evening through your word. And I pray, Father, that you would give us, um, help me to give clarity in the teaching. Help, me, help each of us, Father, to hear with clarity and with understanding. And Lord, I, I pray that as we learn these truths, that, Father, you would show us the way to apply them because your word is truth and it lives forever and we want to live by your truth, Lord God. So would you help us? You be our teacher tonight, Lord, please. Let the words of man just simply fall to the ground if they're not from you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Amen. So the story is told about a, a pastor who is preaching and he's trying to encourage his church, envision them for growth. And he, he, he's saying, church, I just want you to know that, uh, that we've been doing a lot of crawling lately, but the time is coming and it's just around the corner in which we're not going to crawl anymore, but we're going to walk. And the church says, let the church walk, pastor. Let the church walk. The pastor says, but we're not going to be done there because once we're walking, then God's going to lead us to running. We're not just going to walk, but we're going to run, church. And the church in unison says, let the church run. And the pastor said, but I want to tell you what, we're not going to be finished with just running. We're going to fly. Church, we're going to fly. I believe that we're going to fly, but you need to know something. It's going to cost a lot of money. Silence. A voice in the back of the room finally squeaks out, Let the church walk, Pastor. <laughs> so, I believe that God has a very, very special plan for His church. I don't believe that it's just called to walk. I believe that we're called to run and fly. And I, believe, and, and I trust that that's the hope that each of us have individually, that God would teach us to fly. You understand what I mean by that, right? I just Before we get into the study, I want to read a passage here about the special place that the church holds in God's heart, in God's heart that Paul communicates. He's talking about coming to them, and he says in, in 1 Timothy 3.15, If I am delayed, you will know how God, how people, he's speaking to Timothy now, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Now listen to this, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, understand that we are not the pillar and foundation of the truth as in without us, the truth just falls apart and it no longer exists. However, the truth does need to be upheld by the church. That's why we are the pillar. The foundation holds up the house. We hold it up, not in order to... to make it valid, but to validate God's truth to the world. Now, do you understand this? It's like a banner that's waving, a banner of truth that's waving. The one waving it, that's the church, that's you. We are the ones that the world is going to be looking to for the truth. Now, they're going to try and find truth out there in all sorts of religions, but the truth about it is that we hold the truth. And so we lift it up to validate it to the world, not to make it valid. It already is valid. But we validate it because we're living. People are looking at us as we hold it up, as we live it out. That's the challenge that we have. That's, that's the privilege. That's a privileged place. You are the, Saxon, you are the pillar 
and foundation of the truth. John, you're the pillar, a pillar and foundation of the truth. Mary, you're a pillar and foundation of the truth. Each of us are as we validate the truth, as we walk it out, lift it up, and make, as Titus, it says in Titus, make the, the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ attractive. The church. As we uh, talked about the church last week, now I need to give a special place to helping us grasp what is the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it's called the kingdom of heaven. In other gospels, and in it's used once or twice in, 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 as the phrase kingdom of God. So it's not exclusive, the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is the same thing as the kingdom of God. All right. Uh, Matthew speaking, the Jews prefer to use the word heaven rather than God um, to keep in Jewish tradition. But we need to realize, we need to understand what this kingdom of God is. Uh, let me just share with you something it's termed kingdom now theology now you if you go online and go and look up kingdom theology you're going to find a lot of different things this is called kingdom now theology kingdom now theology has we'll talk about post-millennialism another time but it has that flavor to it it believes uh, among many things that god lost control of the world at the fall and he's trying to gain control of the world. Not the hearts of men so much. The, the idea is control of the world. The world systems. The world and the world systems, it is said, is part of the kingdom of darkness. And God wants to make it the king, those systems and areas of influence like politics the kingdom of God. And uh, again, there's many things that are taught in this that I believe veer off from the truth, but this highlights a very clear misunderstanding on their part about what is the kingdom of God. They would say that when a business practices biblical principles, that business is a part of the kingdom of God. It would say that when a government uh, chooses to be a Christian government, and is founded on biblical principles, that nation is a part of the kingdom of God. Now, this is dangerous thinking because it, it brings out this concept of having dominion over people. Now, if we were to look at Genesis 1, 28, the, and, uh, 27 through 29, the, the idea is that we are called, Adam was called, and we are, to have dominion over the animals and the earth, but it never says we're to have dominion over people. That's the role of government. The idea within Kingdom Now theology is that there is no separation between church and state. Um, that part of God's kingdom is governments. Part of God's kingdom, or should be governments. Part of God's kingdom is, is, is education, the arts. They'll call it the kingdom of education, or the kingdom of science, or the kingdom of the arts. And that we're to have dominion in these areas, and that when dominion is exercised, that becomes like God's control, and therefore God's kingdom. Now, it, it, this, this opens the door to excess, and I want to caution that, but I do believe that a government 
a business, arts, any kind of educational program should have at its root and foundation the truth of God's word. But are we to call that God's kingdom so that when we're spreading God's kingdom that we impose God's rules and force people to follow them and therefore say that that is God's kingdom? Because if they follow those rules, does that mean then they are subjects of God's kingdom? I hope we would say no to that. Uh, Leanne, could you read Matthew 4.17? This is not in your notes, so you want to write it down. Matthew 4.17, go ahead. From that time on, Jesus went about preaching. He said, Be sorry for your sins and turn from them. The holy nation of heaven is near. I'm sorry. I don't know what version that is. Um, let, let me just word it this way. It says the, the kingdom of God is near. Okay? I'm not sure why they called it the holy nation, but the kingdom of God is near. All right? So keep that in. The kingdom of God is near. All right, Mary. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Okay. <clears throat> that was John 3, 5. Okay. So how do we enter the kingdom of God? By being born of water, which would probably be a reflection back to Ezekiel 36, about the sprinkling of water, cleansing of the heart, um, and that is the washing away of our sins. He's not talking about water baptism there. Water baptism in itself as a right ritual, sacrament, whatever, does not wash away our sins. It is a reflection of that washing away of sins, Okay. And born of the Spirit, going back to verse 3 where he talks about being born again. No one, it, it, You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. So let me ask you this question. Is the kingdom of God a physical kingdom or is it a spiritual kingdom? Spiritual. It must be a spiritual kingdom. Is a business a physical or spiritual arena? Physical. It's very physical. How about a nation and, it's, and it, the people of that nation following the laws? Is that a physical or spiritual? Physical. It is very physical. But the kingdom of God is spiritual. The kingdom of God is now, but as we're going to see, is in the future. And George Ladd, uh, a theologian of some time ago uh, in the, the previous century, said that uh, it is... Uh, the kingdom now, but not yet. And I like the way that's worded. And a lot of theologians, that, that phrasing, now but not yet, that he uh, popularized has uh, been embraced by a number of theologians, cross-denominational, because it kind of captures this essence. Now, uh, many dispensational theologians would reject that. They believe that the kingdom is future, that it's inaugurated in the millennium, and it is physical and physical only. It is not just simply spiritual. That is when Jesus will be sitting on the throne of David. However, Acts 2, I believe, makes it clear that Jesus is sitting on the throne of David right now. And he is sitting on the throne of David in heaven. We, in, we are the, the kingdom that is future is the kingdom of the next age. And it is the kingdom of the... Uh, Regenesis or heaven. That kingdom that is in the future is being inaugurated now. But we also live 
in a fallen world, it has been to some degree, and I'm only I'm wording it that way, to some degree captured by Satan. And the people are. Satan doesn't own this earth. God is the Lord of the earth. God has not lost control of this earth, though he has lost the control or rule over the hearts of many men and women and children, etc. And Satan is the god of this age. Satan is their god. He rules the kingdom of darkness. It's a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. Our battle is not against the physical. Our battle is against, not against the flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, okay? So the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of, of God are spiritual. They are not physical. So we need to be careful by uh, uh, us, 200 years ago anyway, living in a Christian nation, that did not mean that we were in the kingdom of God, though many would have believed that. Um, we do not want to see the kingdom of God come to this earth in a physical way before the return of Christ. As a matter of fact, we will not see it. It is a spiritual kingdom. So I'm going to word it this way. It is the kingdom now, but not yet. So the full manifestation of the kingdom of God in the future is going to be both spiritual and physical. Spiritual and physical. Jesus' body. We're going to, I'm only going to just briefly touch on this, but Jesus' body, was it a spiritual body or was it a physical body? Oh, good answer. Yes, it was. It was a spiritual body and it was a physical body, but it was not a spirit. Okay? It was a spiritual body because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the natural body is sown to become a spiritual body. But that doesn't mean a spirit because you can't touch a spirit, but you could touch Jesus' body. So his body was physical, but it was not spirit. It was spiritual. So his body, our bodies in heaven, will be both spiritual and physical. So right now, we only experience the spiritual aspects of God's kingdom, not the physical aspects. Um, Satan then seeks to rule the hearts of men. That's where his kingdom is. God's kingdom in the spiritual, not the physical, but the spiritual element is breaking in in that kingdom and is robbing the devil of his domain of, of the, the hearts of men. And eventually, I believe that that domain is going to extend from sea to sea. May your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. It is not a... Um, it, it is a spiritual kingdom in heaven and it will become a spiritual kingdom here on earth but it is the hearts of men having said that let's realize that the kingdom of god is not the church okay the kingdom of god is not the subjects of the kingdom though we are part of the kingdom we are not the kingdom we just read this passage uh, leanne did as far as Go and preach um, for, for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is near. Um, the gospel of the kingdom is truth. It's not something physical. It is here and now, in part, 
But we are not called to go and preach the church. We are, we are called to go and preach the kingdom. So if this is kind of new to you and you tended to associate the kingdom of God with the church, I'm just going to tell you, if you do, then you have made the kingdom of God physical. Because we are physical. The kingdom of God is his rule and reign in my heart. Now I have down here rule and realm only because I want to include this idea of the extent, the sphere of that influence of God's kingdom. All right, But it's spiritual. The heart of it is truth, the gospel of the kingdom. When we embrace this truth, we are born again and we are ushered into his kingdom. Okay? But we are not the kingdom. It is God's rule in the hearts of men. So if a nation passes laws that are biblical laws, that may be called a Christian nation because it's based on that, and maybe the majority of the people who helped vote people in to vote to get these laws passed, maybe the majority of that nation is a are Christians. You could say it's a Christian nation, and I do believe that that is who we were as a nation back when America was founded. I don't know the percentage of people, but I would say a vast majority or, or a vast number, um, and they passed godly laws and established godly principles upon which our nation was founded. However, because people followed that law, those laws did not make them a part of the kingdom. So to believe that truth, to embrace it, that is how we then become part of the kingdom. Not by following the laws, but by, or, or the, the principles. I don't want to just say laws, because it's the, the kingdom of God is founded on principles. It's teaching is principles. That's the heart of it. When we embrace it, we become members of that kingdom, and we get the opportunity to extend that kingdom. All right. Um, Luke eleven twenty. Who has that one? Then if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay. So the kingdom of God has come upon you, or the kingdom of God has come to you. Um, or the kingdom of God... Uh, oh, sorry, that's the next one. So the kingdom of God has come to you by a demonstration of not just the power and authority of Jesus, but with him as king. He is the king, and he is ruling over these demons. So Jesus is the king, ruling, that's the kingdom. Okay? And he demonstrated that rule by exercising authority over those demons and casting them out. So you know that I'm a king with authority when I take authority over these demons and cast them out. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of God, with me as king, has come to you. All right? Luke, Luke 17, 20 to 21. Luke 17, 20 and 21. Okay. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said... The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here, or see there, or indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. 
The kingdom of God is within you. And that's a fair translation of the Greek there, within. It is, it is not just um, going to come. The kingdom of God is within you. All right, so it's, we can see there that it's spiritual. Luke 22, 29, and 30. And you can turn to these passages as we go. I'm just having, I divvied them out to people so that we could move quickly. But 22, who has 22, 29, to 30? I do. Okay. Just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So when was a kingdom conferred on these apostles? When they made the choice to follow Jesus. Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> we would have to say that this, he, he is, I am conferring on you. It doesn't say I will confer on you, but I am conferring. I am passing on to you a kingdom. Why does he do this? Why does he pass on this kingdom to his disciples, to his apostles here? What does the passage say? And judge. Okay. When will this be? Well, it happens at the time you become a believer, born again. Okay, that is the first mention of the kingdom. But we become a part of his kingdom now so that we can eat and drink at his table... When heaven comes to earth. Now, can I just... Maybe this isn't fair, but I'm, I'm going to toss this in. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that this is not the millennium that... Uh, if you hold to a premillennial view of the millennium, that there's a thousand years between the return of Christ and judgment, this cannot be talking about that time. Even though, especially within the dispensational premillennialist view, they believe that Jesus is going to sit on the throne, the twelve apostles will be sitting on twelve thrones, and they will be judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and that they will be judging Jews, okay, the twelve tribes of Israel who, who have become Christians. Um, but Matthew tells us, in Matthew, Jesus tells us that this will happen at the renewal of all things, at the regenesis. Um, he says, at that time, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? And so, Paul, excuse me, Jesus is saying that his apostles will be ruling the 12 tribes of Israel, which, by the way, that word judge is also translated lead. We see that in the book of Genesis as well. It's not just that they're judges with a gavel in hand. They are leading as a leader, leading. They're leading them, all right? And more on this later, but that is, he's not referring to some millennium here, 
that I'm conferring on you a kingdom now so that you can eat with me in that thousand year reign on earth. He is saying you can eat with me now so that you can do this in heaven when heaven comes to earth, okay? In the age to come. All right? Who has Colossians 1.13? All right, Cole, if you could read that. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Okay. Um, was there... Okay, that was 13. Right. So, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom is redemption and forgiveness of sins. Uh, this, again, is the kingdom now, but not yet. This is a spiritual kingdom that is seeking to dominate the kingdom of darkness. That is God's goal. His goal is to overcome the dominion of darkness. And then how about Matthew 13, 33? Who has that? Stephen. Let me ask you this. What is the yeast? What is the treasure, the hidden treasure? And what is the pearl of great value? The gospel. Okay. The gospel. The gospel of the... Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Did you not read the last one? I'm sorry. I jumped ahead, didn't I? Go for it. Verse 46. Merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, I appreciate you reading that and bringing that to my attention that you hadn't. So, yes, the the yeast is the gospel, and it is that truth that, when embraced then becomes the rule of God in that person's heart, okay? It is said then to impact the entire lump of dough. That entire lump of dough, if you were to look at the two previous parables, would represent the field, would represent the, uh, the garden, and it would be the world. So the, the yeast will influence leaven the entire lump, okay? I'm not saying that everyone is going to become Christians, but the idea here, though, is that the gospel of the kingdom, kingdom principles, the gospel of which is the heart, it will influence and impact the entire world. That is its goal. When we look at the the hidden treasure, um, 
and the pearl of great value, we see that that it, it, you are willing, this person is willing to sell everything that he has just so that he can have that. What does that tell you? What does that communicate to you? It's valuable. Okay, it's valuable. It's worth giving up everything you have. Yes. Jesus is teaching on the, the kingdom and he's saying it is worth everything. It's worth everything. How about Luke 19, uh, 11? Who has that verse? While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Whoa, wait, wait a second. So they thought the kingdom of God would appear at once. But Jesus just said to them, same gospel writer Luke, in Luke 17, that the kingdom of God is presently within you. But then the people thought the kingdom of God was about to appear. So those who believe that the kingdom of God is not now, but is only in the future, starting with the millennium, or their view of the millennium, they then say that that this is one of the main passages that they will use. But it neglects many of these passages that we just read. It is now, but not yet. So if we were to look at that parable, and and I'm sorry, we don't have time to read the entire parable just so that we can cover all the material tonight... Um, we would discover that Jesus is the one who goes away to receive a kingdom. Now, unfortunately, it says to become a king. How many versions have to become a king? The NIV. In Luke 19, 12, 13, something like that. He goes away to be made king. That it... That is not what the Greek says. He goes away to receive a kingdom. Jesus is already a king. He is receiving, he is king of a spiritual kingdom. He's going away and he's not going necessarily to be made king, though he is seated in heaven. He he truly is ruling and reigning from his throne in heaven right now. But when he comes back, And that's the point that Jesus is wanting to make with this parable. That's when the spiritual slash physical kingdom of God will come. Because people people were looking for a physical kingdom and no physical kingdom was going to come. Only a spiritual kingdom. Because they thought that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be setting himself up as king, extending his rule from sea to sea in a physical way. And that's not going to happen until heaven. So that's when the the kingdom then, he's going away to receive a kingdom that is that spiritual, physical kingdom that will manifest itself in the new heavens and new earth in which he will rule and reign forever and ever at that point. Okay, um, and then Luke twenty two eighteen. And by the way, excuse me, but that kingdom in that kingdom now that it's physical, not just spiritual, we will receive rewards. And in the parable, the servants that were faithful um, have authority uh, are, are given an account and are given account and therefore receive 
instead of they they had they took one mina and they made ten. Now they receive ten cities to have charge over. That's physical. Okay, the kingdom of God does become the domain that we we God part of God's rewards and inheritance that He will give to us in that day will be very physical. Now I'm not saying natural as in flesh and, and flesh and blood that's decayable. The mortal takes on immortality. The perishable takes on the imperishable. Nothing will fade away. Okay, so this is, don't confuse. When I'm saying physical, I don't mean flesh and blood like this that can decay. I'm saying material that you can touch and feel. It's real. That's what the kingdom of God will be. Spiritual and physical. So this is what he's talking about, that future kingdom that is yet to come. How about Luke 22, 18? Who has that one? Brian? For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay. So again, to put these together, Jesus is saying there is a kingdom now, but there is a kingdom in the future. And when it's in the future, it will be full and complete. Okay? Any questions just with regard to the kingdom of God? All right, now... I, I'm, I'm spending time on this because we need to be careful that even though... Yes, question. Yes, okay, well, question. Well, I was wondering about that first. Like, I won't drink from the vine until the kingdom of heaven. Does that mean, like, Jesus never drank wine after that? And I was thinking... like so I was From thinking, that moment on, yes. Okay. That was Thursday night. Um, he did have uh, wine vinegar mixed with gall and... Right. Took a sip of it, and so, but technically, he did not drink of wine, and so, anyway, yes, he would not drink of it until the new kingdom. What significance is that? I was just wondering because it it seems kind of almost random. Okay, all right, yeah, and I would agree. It can certainly seem random. I'm not going to drink of this until um, he, but he does go on and he says that you will. Eat, we will together eat and drink in this new kingdom that is yet to come, and you're going to rule and reign. Um, and so he, he is, he's, he's focusing on that to, to simply say that this isn't just... There's a lot of things that could be implied with that, such as it's not just spiritual, because spirits and ghosts can't grasp things, they can't eat and drink, but this will be very real. And I'm not going to eat and drink, or I'm not going to drink of the vine until then. Kind of giving a sense of certainty, this is going to happen. All right, Stephen, did you have a comment or a question? Question. Okay. So, uh, with like when you had said earlier about the kingdom being one of truth, um, and then the Bible we were reading how the kingdom is like conferred upon us upon believing. So, like when the Spirit of God deposited in us. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like some reason I'm having trouble reconciling. I know the spirit of God is truth, but like I guess when I think of truth, I think of like knowing the word of God. And so. Okay. Let me just say this. It's it's the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel is not the kingdom. Okay. It is when we embrace the gospel. The rule of God is now in our hearts. That's the kingdom. It's the rule of God. 
But the rule of God is there because we've responded to the gospel. That's why it's called the gospel of the kingdom. So that's why I say the, the truth gospel is not the kingdom. It is the foundation, if you will, of the kingdom because it's only as we follow the kingdom has principles for us to live. And as we walk in obedience, we walk in a greater measure of what God has for us, the, the flow of his spirit, power and authority, and so on. Okay? So, that, that's why Jesus exercising his authority, not exercising the gospel, exercising his authority, said, this is how you know that the kingdom of God has come to you. And he cast out the demons. His rule there, and, and such. But for us to be a part of this, live in it, walk in it, right. In, in, in all of the rule of God in our hearts, it, the, the heart of it is the gospel and the, and the principles. That is, we believe them and live them out. We, we get to experience a greater rule and reign of God in our lives. And there's much, of course, that flows out of that. Okay? Did I answer that question for you? Yeah, I'll bring it up Okay, maybe we could talk about that later because I'm sure it's a good question. But uh, so that we move on here, um, I want us now to move to the church, the subjects of God's kingdom. And and I want to ask the question: Is the church a democracy? Now within congregational churches like a Baptist or a congregational church and, and many other denominations, they would say that the church is a democracy. That um, to do to do things, you get the congregation together and they vote on it. They vote on policy. They vote on a number of things. Now, I personally have never been Baptist, but they are, they are in essence, the governing authority in the church. The people are. Um, it is not representative. It is congregational. So the authority rests in the congregation. Now let me just say this. I do believe that authority rests in the congregation. Matthew 18. If you have someone sins against you, go to them privately. If they don't listen to you, you take two or three witnesses. Not people that you have told about it, but people that can verify the story or the truth of them of the, the biblical truth of this, okay? And in that way, they're witnesses. Um, if they don't listen to the two or three witnesses, then you take it to the church. Now, Jesus doesn't define who the church is. He doesn't say the leaders of the church. He just says, take it to the church. Now, that doesn't mean spread it like spread it as a, a rumor, like wildfire amongst the church. So that the person is so embarrassed they leave the church. That's not what he's getting at. But there is authority in the church. When Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to look at this next week, he says if the person doesn't, who, who's been sleeping with his mother uh, or stepmom refuses to repent, you excommunicate him. Okay. So when you gather together as a church, turn him over. It is the church... Not just the pastor or elders, etc. It is the church by their authority to do this. Now, so I'm not going to deny the authority that's in the church, but what is the extent of that authority? And that's what we need to ask. 
We're going to answer that question as we go on, okay? But a democracy, a true democracy, which America, by the way, is not, America is a what? It's a republic, okay? And by by being a republic, that means the people vote, but it is those that they vote in or the leaders that actually make the decisions for the people, okay? Um, who let, let's look at Acts 6, 3 to 4. And, and, and what I'm going to do is I want us to share, I want to share with you some scriptures that those who believe that the church is a democracy would use. And let's let's look at them. We're not going to be able to look at them real in depth, but I want us to be able to look at them and acknowledge I mean, the, these these are not stupid people. Some very intelligent men have embraced this idea that the church is a democracy. Um, Acts 6, 3 to 4, <clears throat> you're aware of the situation with the Grecian widows and they were being neglected and they needed to be cared for and needs met. And so he says, verse 3, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. All right. This is often used to say, see, they are the ones who chose deacons. And then they extrapolate that to me to also include, well, then they would also choose elders. Who? The people. The people could recognize character and therefore the people chose them not just deacons, but they would choose elders. And it is very possible that the idea of deacons that we have is kind of demonstrated here. <clears throat> but let's, let's realize something, that these people have not been elected as officers. We don't find the title deacon given to them. They have been chosen for a task, and a task only. They don't have, they are not officers. They are not titled members of the church. They need someone with administrative skills, and if you're going to be administrating money, food, taking money from from the church, buying things and distributing it, you need to be administrative, but you need to be godly. Okay? And that godliness has to be rooted in the Spirit. And so for that reason, he talks about being full of the Spirit and wisdom. But it is for a task and not an office, all right? Now, we should also realize that the apostles recognized in the church the ability to discern character, okay? Now, how they did this selection process, we don't know. But the church did it, and then the apostles laid hands on them, and with the authority that that Christ had given them, set them in to deal with this responsibility, this task. As we turn now to Acts 15, Acts 15, um, this is not in your notes, so I'm kind of throwing it in there, so write that down, Acts 15. Verse 4, it says, when they came to Jerusalem, there was the issue of, should, the, should you be 
circumcised in order to be saved. It's a theological issue. When they came to Jerusalem, that is Paul and Barnabas, uh, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And if we're not careful, we can assume, as it talks about in the next verse, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. This was shot down. But who did it? Does it say the apostles and elders in the church? So the church was excused at this point. And the apostles and the elders determined a policy, the truth of this issue. Skip over to verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. So did the church then help set these men in as leaders in the church? Yeah. Read that verse again. It sounds like the church decided like part of the decision to pick somebody, but it doesn't say the church picked the guys okay. that did. All right. All right, they were, look, if you look at the verse, they were already leaders, weren't they? And what were they chosen to do? Become officers or to do a task? A task. They were do called to do a task. Okay. Now, both of these men, later in, what is it, I think it's verse 32, are called prophets. They could have chosen evangelists, I suppose, but their purpose was to be able to discern the heart of God give wise counsel, they needed to know the word, and so instead of choosing an evangelist, they chose someone um, who might be able to work better with people. Not all prophets do. And so they chose these two men who could probably work well with people, be able to, and I'm kind of guessing here why they chose these two, but of all their leaders, who would be able to represent us well Work well with the people rather than just shutting them down. You guys are all wrong. This is what you need to do. They don't want to choose people who are authoritarian. They want to choose people who are good, strong leaders, know how to present it well, but who are gracious and can, and can win the hearts of people. All right? So I'm sure that there were some of these types of things that they were looking for, but they were already leaders. They weren't setting them in as deacons or elders or some other office. Um, and they, have, they, they decided to choose two men of their leadership with the gifting of prophecy and, and actually called prophets to go, okay? So both of these passages that are common passages used to teach democracy within the church or a congregational form of government, both of them, neither of them, do they set in officers in the church. They actually uh, help choose people to simply do a task, Okay? But what we also see here is the ability of the church, for the most part, to discern character, to discern gifting. And so, you know, for that reason, when we set anybody in as like a deacon or a life group leader, I ask for the assistance of the church. Could you please uh, 
share with me, you know, privately, if, it, if it's something that's, that's negative, I don't want the, them to stand up and sure say, well, yeah, I don't think they should because of this, that, or the other. And I saw them the other day doing this, that, you know, that, that's really an opportunity for gossip. But if there are concerns that they come to me privately, okay, email me, whatever. And so I, I do want their input on these things, okay? I have had people come to me, well, what about this person and what about this person? And as, as a pastor, I need, I am obligated to listen to them. And God has spoken through many people this way, okay? And if we were to turn now to Acts 14, 23... says Paul is on Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They go through Galatia, southern Galatia. They're coming back and they're they're coming to Iconium and Lystra, Pisidian Antioch, and they are strengthening the churches, but now they need to set in elders. Here's the thing, and, and I only am going to touch on this. This isn't this missionary journey, and it's like the last leg of his journey, and then he goes, he, he doubles back. It wasn't a couple of years. If anything, it was less than a year. And people of these, these are for the most part recent converts. However, let's also understand where did these converts come from? More than likely, they didn't come from pagan religions. They came from the synagogue. Paul's strategy was to preach the gospel in the synagogue until he got kicked out and then reach the Gentiles. All right, And that's what he would regularly do. And so these elders, no doubt, came from older men who had known the Old Testament like the back of their hand when they understood who Jesus was in the fulfillment of these prophecies concerning the Messiah and they understood the gospel, and they listened intently to, to Paul, they, were, they understood the gospel, they understood uh, Christ and his, his purpose in coming, and they were soon set in as elders. So they were already grounded in the word. They needed some more direction um, with regard to who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Okay, But... It says here in the next verse, excuse me, the next verse, in verse 23, it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. This word for appointed, I'm going to give you the Greek word here, um, but it's keratoneo, C-H-E-I-R-O-T-O-N-E-O, keratoneo. That means to stretch out the hand. Um, some people, and it is used this way by uh, Isocrates, around 400 BC, to mean raising the hand to vote, which would seem rather de democratic. But it is also used in that same time frame, time, same time frame, instead of stretching the hand this way, stretching the hand this way, and appointing. Just like we would appoint, it's, it's like you're pointing the hand, you're appointing somebody, and they would select or appoint people to things. <clears throat> and so we need to realize 
that we can't just assume that keratineo means a raising of the hand to vote on it. Because the Greek word also meant to select, to choose, to appoint. Okay? And we're going to see this more clearly, but here, who is it that does the appointing? It is Paul and Barnabas. So if it means raising the hand, Paul turns to Barnabas and said, Okay, Barnabas, do you, th- who, who, uh, do you think that uh, Gaius here is worthy of being an elder? Let's, uh, let's have a vote here. And Paul and Barnabas would raise their hands because they're the ones who did the appointing. They're the ones, if it's a, if it's a vote, it's just the two of them. All right, I'm kind of being a little facetious here. And so we need to understand this keratineo to mean appoint, not a raising of the hand to vote, okay? They appointed these men, these elders. If you were to turn to Titus 1.5, let's do that. And, and add that, if you would, as a letter D, Titus 1.5. That's under representative leadership. Yeah. Yes, but I... Not Titus 1.5, right, right? It's Titus 1.5 through 9. So I just want to read verse 5 for you. <clears throat> and after Paul's imprisonment or house arrest in Rome, he was released in 61-62 AD. He then rendezvous with Timothy, rendezvous with Titus. He meets Titus or takes Titus to Crete and he leaves Titus there to help establish the church in Crete. And he says here in verse 5, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Second person singular. Appoint is not in the plural. It's second person singular. He is telling Titus... You are to do the appointing. So if Titus were to be uh, appointing and he were to be saying, okay, let's vote on it, he's the only one. He's the only one voting. So it obviously means to appoint as in pointing the finger and select. He is is the one appointing. And so he he is appointing who? What is his job? To appoint... Elders. Okay, appoint elders. So here he is. He w- I'm going to call him an elder. He is more than that. But he has the authority to appoint elders. Okay? I would suggest to you that he is functioning apostolically here. Paul and Barnabas, Acts 15, 14, 23, were functioning apostolically. So they have that authority to be able to set these elders in place. Now, Let's let's then, well, let me just wrap this up before we move on. What we see then is a, a church that is not a democracy, but it is, it is at least representative. I'm going to build that a little bit, but when we're talking about church government, that church government, that authority is not placed in the hands of the church. It is placed in its leaders. Authority connotes responsibility, and therefore, if you f- if some if they have authority and responsibility, others follow that. 
That's a leader. We're going to look at Hebrews 13 and it says obey your leaders, not obey one another. Okay? Obey your leaders. So Jesus, in setting up his church, has, set, has, has called the church to set in place leaders. Okay? So let's now then turn to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11 talks about certain offices within the church. Can someone read verse 11 for us? Verse 11, and let's do verse 12 as well. Okay, and in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith. So all five of these people listed, and I'm going to suggest four, but they are given until. So we will have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So I would suggest to you that we are not there yet. The Bible did not bring us there yet. It is bringing us there, but we have not arrived, and so we still need these men. Now, the reason why I suggest pastor-teachers pastor rather than pastors and teachers is because of the Greek construction. The word some appears before apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, but does not appear before teachers. And same with the definite article. Consequently, uh, what they call the Gram-sharp rule. You don't have to write that down. But in Greek grammar, they would say he is. It's it's better or more proper to not view teachers as a separate office, but as to see it as one office hyphenated pastor teacher. Okay. Otherwise, um, to for five for there to be a fivefold ministry, the common phrase that's given. It, it should read, it is he, referring to Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, and some to be teachers. But the Greek doesn't read that way. So it's better to be understood, pastor, teachers. And he doesn't explain why, but I would suggest to you that these pastor, teacher, this, this pastor, teacher, those who hold, those who, ha, those who are set in, the office as pastor-teacher, they are not just simply teachers, but they are teachers of the word who have a heart for the people. Because that word pastor means shepherd. It's the Greek word for shepherd. Shepherd-teacher. Shepherd-teachers. And a pastor must be able to teach the word. Now, maybe not all elders would be able to do that, but pastor teachers or shepherd teachers need to. All right? Um, so we call this the fivefold ministry or fourfold ministry. And if you were to look, I might be skipping ahead here, but uh, yeah, I, I'll just mention it. If you see First Peter 5, 1 to 2 down there, First Peter 5, 1 to 2. Peter is, of these offices, which one is he? Apostle. He's an apostle. In chapter 5, verse 1, he calls himself a fellow elder. To my fellow elders, so he is a fellow elder with them, and he gives them this charge. 
So we would have to assume then that these offices are elders in the church. They would have to qualify with this next passage we're going to look at, though I'm not going to read it all. First, to, actually, I'm just going to refer to it. That's what my note says here, only refer to it. First Timothy 3, 1 to 13. Is that right, 13? Yes, 13. It is those who desire to be overseers, you're, you're aspiring to a good thing. And then it lists the qualifications of an overseer. This word overseer is the word episkopos. We get the word episcopalian from it. Okay, It means oversee. It is, it's translated in the King James, bishop. That's where we get the word bishop from. All right, It is this Greek word, episkopos. So it is fair to say that these apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers are elders. They fit the qualifications of an elder. But now we, we have to ask the question, where do we get the qualifications of an elder? And what is an overseer? Is an elder different than an overseer? And if we look at 1 Timothy 3, it just refers to overseers and deacons. Then where are the qualifications for an elder? If you look at Titus 1, so go back to Titus 1. In verse 6, so he's going to appoint elders. And he says in verse 6, An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted, that is the word because. Because an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then he goes on and talks about his ability to handle the word well and defend the faith in verse 9. But if his job is to appoint elders, why then does he give qualifications for an elder and an overseer, an episkopos. The word elder here by the word is presbyteros. We get the word presbyterian from it. And what we find, both an elder has to be blameless and an overseer has to be blameless. But then, I think the NIV kind of lays it out well with a hyphen after the word blameless to define what does Paul mean by being blameless? So for the elder, his definition of blameless has to do with how he, he his home, okay? When, he, when an overseer is, needs to be blameless, he defines it as character in general. It almost seems as if an elder is an overseer but when he speaks of overseer, now he's talking functionality. Now he's talking about how perhaps an elder would function. And because he oversees, he has to be a man of integrity so that people can look up to him as an example. Okay? 
<clears throat> what we also find in Philippians 1.1, and you can turn there with me. And we're, we're trying to ask this question, who leads in the church? Who leads in the church? What do they do? So Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, the episcopoi and the deacons. Okay. In other words, the, the, the office for deacon, or, or the word deacon as an office, is found here and in 1 Timothy 3, and, and very possibly in Romans 16.1, where Phoebe is mentioned as a deaconess. Um, some translations call her just a servant, which is a fair translation of this word for deacon. Um, but it, it almost, it, it's, it seems as if Paul is referring to her as one who carries some measure of authority as a deaconess, not just a servant. Okay? Um, so it's not found very often. And uh, when we come back to it, we're, we're going to need to define it. What is a deacon? And it's, it's not going to be real easy for us. But I believe that there's enough information to get an idea. Here, we see the word for overseers and deacons. Where's the word for elder? Did, did Paul just forget about the elders? Did, did the church at, at Philippi, as large as it was, just not have elders? You have three groups, saints, overseers, and deacons. The last two are leaders, and they're the ones who overse- help oversee the church. So we, it's fair to ask, where are the elders? I'm going to suggest to you that an elder is an overseer. An elder is an overseer. Um, in Acts 15, 4 to 6 and 22 to 23... It talks about the church, the apostles, and the elders. Where are the overseers? Um, turn with me to Acts 20, verses 28 to 29. I see that I am just about out of time, so I'm going to need to go through these last two a little quickly, but that's fine. Acts 2, excuse me, Acts 20, 28 and 29. Do you have it there, Cole? Acts 20, 28 and 29. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he fought with his own blood. I know that I that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Okay. So the reason why he is needing them to oversee is to care for them so that false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, don't come in lead them and lead them astray. Who, maybe you can look at the context, the broader context, um, who is he talking to here in this passage? 
Who is he talking to? Who is Paul talking to? Okay, look at verse 17. He's landed at Miletus. He doesn't want to go to Ephesus because last time he was in Ephesus, previous chapter, there was a riot and they almost killed him. So he's in Miletus, several miles away from Ephesus. I think it's about 20 miles, if I'm not mistaken. Ephesus is upriver. And so he asks who to come to him? The elders. Presbuteros or presbutera. So the elders come to him and he says, your job is to episcopoi. That's not the verb, but to oversee. It's your job to bishop. Look at verse uh, 20. I'm sorry. Is that verse 29? Be shepherds. Wherever that is. My, uh, 28. Uh, uh, tw- that's 28. Okay, thank you. These numbers are too small for me to read. And It says, be shepherds. That's the verb for pastor. He's calling them to shepherd the people, the, the, the church of God, and care for them. That is, to pastor them. The elders are to oversee and pastor, care for the flock. Now, those who would be more itinerant of these elders slash overseers, they may be more gifted in teaching, and so instead of being local, they may be more itinerant. That means they may go from church to church to help build them up. Apollos was a teacher. We don't know of him as an apostle or an evangelist or as a prophet, but he was definitely a teacher. Um, And I would venture to then call him a pastor teacher, but he wasn't just local. He was extra local. He was more itinerant. Apostles, though they may stay in an area for a while, Paul as much as almost three years, they were itinerant in their ministry. Evangelists, Philip the evangelist, He was not just local, though I'm sure he stayed in some churches, but his goal was from his base of operation in a local church, he then went out and he ministered to the people. His work in Samaria in Acts 8 is a well-known example of that. So these five, excuse me, fourfold ministry people are all elders slash overseers but they have different giftings. Some of those giftings take them beyond the four walls of the local church, if you will, and others' giftings cause them to stay local and minister to them. And so we have the... I'm going to call it the fivefold ministry only because that's such a recognized term, but you understand there are four. And then on the other hand, we have elders, overseers, slash pastor, teachers, and deacons, those two offices. Overseers, elders, pastors, and deacons. All right? We actually find in 1 Peter 5, 1 to 2, Peter tells those fellow elders to oversee and shepherd, and he uses the same two verbs in Acts 20. Elders should oversee and should shepherd. Then in in Hebrews 13, 17, and I'm going to wrap it up with this. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. So these men have authority. Their church is to submit to them. 
but always also understand. It goes on and says, they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Authority always has a jurisdiction. Meaning, a field or an area to exercise that authority. Meaning, there is a certain amount or measure of authority that they have. That does not include as exampled in the shepherding movement, of telling people whether they should move or not move, whether they should live here or there, whom they should marry. That is not in the field or the jurisdiction of a pastor to decide. We all have the Spirit of God. We all have the opportunity to hear the voice of God and and, and to be led by the Spirit. Okay? The pastor, his job is to help oversee and care and teach and instruct so that they can walk in godliness. Okay? And he is also called to govern the affairs of the church, as 1 Peter 5 says. So the things that happen in the church. But I can't see what's going on in your family and say, you know what? Uh, You need to decline that job. I'm just going to tell you right now, just decline that job. I don't have that authority. I can't tell Cole what jobs that he should accept and which ones he shouldn't. That's not my jurisdiction. Okay? And and so, anyway, I want to wrap it up by saying this. We live in a day in which the concept of the local church has been greatly diminished. People do not understand this concept of the local church. Many people have been wounded by the local church. Honestly, there are so many local churches, at least in America, and people go from church to church. Not only if, if they get offended that they move on to another church, not only do they church hop, but they can, pit, they can pick, choose, which churches they want to go to from week to week, which pastor that they want to hear preach, what worship from this church or that that they want to listen to, what young adults ministry they want to be a part of. And if they get tired of all of that, I've even heard people say, I am a part of Jesus's church. I just don't believe in the local church. And I have, I have to tell them, I realize you don't go to a local church and that you can commune with God in the woods. And that's great. But that would, but the woods, the forest is not your church. It is not called a local church. Jesus, however, believes in the local church. Jesus has plan A and no plan B. And the plan A is that the local church functions as it should so as to make disciples of all the nations. That's Jesus' plan A. And there is no other plan. Jesus does not have a plan for renegades who don't want to get plugged into a local church. A local church is governed by leaders. There is, they meet together. They worship. We are called to be committed to that local expression of the body of Christ. There is ministry that happens within those gatherings. There is preaching and teaching that occurs within this. And if we're part of a gathering of people that does not have this, I would dare not call it a local church. 
we do have to be careful with parachurch ministries. I'm not opposed to them. But Jesus' plan A did not mean parachurch ministries off by themselves, as if there's the local church and then there's the parachurch ministries. But in many cases, parachurch ministries operate completely separate from the local church. And I'm not saying that every parachurch ministry has to, as a unit, come under the authority of a local church. But we have to be careful because parachurch ministries can be a church unto themselves. And the governing is an organization. They do not necessarily meet for fellowship, but they meet to accomplish a task with an authority structure and many of them operate completely separate from a local church. And, and as I read through the New Testament, I see the value of itinerant ministries, but parachurch ministries that are completely segregated from the local church, I just don't see in the scriptures anywhere. So, I want to just explain what cool. parachurch ministries Okay, a para, para meaning para, like parallel alongside. It's just that many parachurch ministries like Campus Crusade for Christ, Navigators, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, very large organizations. These leaders need to be submitted to a local church. And, and I have to... I, 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 it is at least questionable within the New Testament the degree to which they function. Because I just don't, I don't see parachurch ministries in the New Testament. I see the local church. I see men like Paul and Barnabas. That that was a para-church ministry. It was an extension, not of... They didn't just one day wake up and say, man, we have this vision of reaching the lost. Hey, let's do it. Number one, they were gathered at Antioch, the local church, with the leaders, and the leaders of prophetic word came out, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work or the ministry that I called them to. They laid hands on them and sent them off. They were birthed out of the local church. Paul and Barnabas didn't just one day say, this is what we need to do. Hey guys, look, we're leaving. I hope you can bless us. Bye-bye. The local church leaders sent them out. I'm just having a hard time seeing these huge parachurch ministries birthed from just a, a man's vision. Um, these, these men that were sent out, when Paul and Barnabas came back, they were answerable to Jerusalem leaders, which was the hub of the church, and they were answerable to the Antioch local church. They were not just itinerant doing whatever they wanted. They were sent out from the church, and they were answerable to the church. Okay. And so, I'm not saying that there's no place for parachurch ministries. We just have to, if we do this, we must find the pattern in the New Testament, and we must find it at, at, at being governed by governed by that. God has called us all to be plugged into a local church, um, in which we are connected with one another with spiritual gifts. Ministry is absolutely uh, the focus of what we are doing: ministry to God and to one another. Okay, and apart from that, Jesus has no other plan. Let me close in prayer for us. Father, I, I ask you, Lord, that you would continue to instruct us through your truth, Lord God. And, and Father, I thank you for the visions that you have birthed in the hearts 
of so many in Powerline and, and ideas, and you've accomplished so much through them as they, they have operated from the local church. And I would just ask you, Lord, that you would help us as, as we seek as a, as a local expression of the body of Christ to function optimally within your word and your principles that we would reach the lost, we would make disciples of all nations, God. We submit this to you, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.